0: Broward schools see student walkouts over the transgender issue, Everglades restoration buckles under big sugar, and how do we save Puerto Rican health care? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup, I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at the Broward County controversy over whether a transgender student can play girls volleyball. Students are protesting in support of transgender rights, but what is the answer to this? We'll also talk about the new WLRN Everglades podcast, Bright Lit Place and Big Sugar's role in blocking the cleanup of one of our key eco treasures. And we'll examine how Puerto Rico's mortality rate is going up as its healthcare system tumbles down. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, benvindo. This week, we found out that a transgender girl at Monarch High School in Coconut Creek has been playing on the school's girls' volleyball team. The problem, of course, is that two years ago, Florida enacted a law that prohibits students who were born male from playing on girls' sports teams. Broward County's new school superintendent, Peter Licata, felt compelled to reassign or suspend five Monarch administrators and coaches, and an investigation is underway. That district response sparked two days of student walkouts at Monarch in support of the transgender athlete and transgender rights. State officials, meanwhile, are calling for, quote, serious consequences, and to many critics, are insulting transgender youths. This case only returns us to a debate that hasn't really been hashed out morally, ethically, and medically, even if red states like Florida think they've had the last word legally. Do this transgender student, for example, really hold an unfair competitive advantage? What is the answer? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to look at this case and its fallout is the South Florida Sun Sentinels education reporter, Scott Travis, who's been following this story this week. Scott, good to have you with us again.
1: Hi, Tim. Good to be here.
0: Let's back up a little before this week and even before 2021, when Florida's Fairness in Women's Sports Act was passed, barring transgender athletes from playing on female teams. Before that, Were students who transitioned from male to female generally allowed to play on girls sports teams in Florida's public schools?
1: I... I can only speak for Broward and a few other districts, and mm-hmm. they had policies at the time. They had an LGBTQ resource guide that specifically allowed that uh, for transgender uh, students to play on the team uh, of the gender identity that they identify with. Right. I don't think it was a major issue if there were students that were playing they didn't get a lot of publicity. I don't think we knew much about them. So I don't know uh, what the extent to how many transgender players there actually were.
0: Did, did those guidelines, do you know, Scott, for example, include, um, you know, uh, criteria as to when a student may have started taking testosterone blockers, at what age, et cetera, et cetera, again, falling under that criteria of what constitutes a competitive advantage or unfair advantage in playing a sport?
1: I don't think it addressed that issue. Okay. I think those those uh, concerns came uh, probably a, a few years ago when there was the a Connecticut uh, teen, Selena Soul, right. who was who felt that she had been unfairly uh, kept out of a, uh, I think it was a track and field sport because of right. her uh, be, because there were some transgender students. That was, what? What? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, some transgender students who may have scored higher than she did or had a better time than she did and therefore she got disqualified from the team is my understanding. Was that
0: Connecticut case then what brought on the drive to pass a law in Florida to prohibit that that, that sort of uh, participation?
1: They were definitely related because uh, when Governor DeSantis held the press conference in 2021, he brought that same student, uh, Selena Soule, who then later went on to uh, Florida Atlantic University to become a track and field athlete there, although I don't believe she's there anymore. Um, So she was there at the press conference. So that seemed to be one of the impetus that uh, this case, at least for a lot of the conservative people, it, it brought the idea that you know, is this really fair to have somebody who was born a man to be able to compete against women? And they argued that uh, there is a competitive disadvantage that uh, these transgender females had.
0: Now, the transgender student involved in the Monarch High School controversy and her parents had actually filed a federal suit two years ago, asserting her right to play on the girls' volleyball team, right?
1: That is correct.
0: OK, and that suit essentially said what? I mean, and especially in terms of the parents' insistence that she had no competitive advantage over other girls on the volleyball court. What was their argument in, in that regard?
1: Well, their argument was that she was a girl that she had, uh, I guess, had had been having gender affirming care since she was very young. about al- About 11 before- years
0: old, right? From what I've read.
1: Yeah, I believe it, and I'm not sure, I can't remember the exact age, but it, it was definitely, she had uh, had, I think it was pre-puberty, yeah. and that she had had some kind of hormones to uh, block you know, uh, puberty. And therefore, uh, she had, one of the arguments that you hear from people that are in favor of transgender women playing on sports teams is when they take certain hormones, it allows them to be it, it kind of levels the playing field, is what their right. argument is. And 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 we so know it, that
0: this this transgender girl now is about fifteen years old at Monarch High School, right?
1: Yeah, she is a uh, sophomore at the school right now. Right. So this is her second year play. She played her second year of volleyball at the school.
0: Now, going back to the lawsuit that the family filed, a court ruling came down last month, right? What what did the judge say?
1: Okay, so the judge had sided with the state, basically saying that uh, it was not unfair discrimination. And one of the reasons that the judge said that, the judge sided with the state and said that, uh, well, this law does not just apply to transgender girls. It doesn't single out the transgender community because it applies to any uh, anyone who's born male, male whether right. it's transgender or cisgender. Mm-hmm. So, therefore... Um, And that the state has a compelling reason to do this, because if you allow males in uh, female sports, that they could actually end up uh, taking away opportunities for girls. Mm -hmm. And they also it also noted that it's not the judge argued it's not discriminatory for transgender community because transgender. Female, females, those that were born. I'm sorry, transgender males, uh, those that were born female and then are now male, they are allowed to play on the boys team. This is all about a competitive disadvantage that males may have over females, not about the Mm -hmm. transgender issue, is what the judge wrote. He also allowed the plaintiffs to... to file an amended complaint. And I believe I haven't told January to do that. Right. I do not, I have not been able to get in touch with the lawyers mm-hmm. to find out uh, what their next steps are.
0: So although the, smoot- the suit was dismissed, the family yeah. was still given an opportunity to re-present it in the, in the future.
1: That is correct.
0: Okay, so that brings us to this week, or, or should I say last week, right? Because that's when Broward School Superintendent Peter Licata was informed that this transgender student was still playing on the girls' volleyball team at Monarch?
1: Uh, Yes, he said that he got an anonymous, or he got a call from a constituent, anonymous in that he would not tell us who it was because the person did not want to be identified, uh, that basically tipped him off about that. Now he, and he, although there had been this lawsuit that had gone on for a couple of years, uh, Dr. Lakata has only been here since July. So he says that he knew nothing about that lawsuit. And the school district had actually been dismissed from that lawsuit uh, in 2022. Right. So it is con- it is certainly very possible, perhaps probable, mm-hmm. that he had no knowledge of this. So what
0: actions did Lakata take when everybody came back from the Thanksgiving break this week?
1: Um, he then, so on, I think starting last week, some school district employees were working last week during the Thanksgiving break for the first couple of days and people that were based in, and other people were not like, I think the principal was working last week. So I think Mm -hmm. the principal was told last week that he would be, uh, you know, put on reassignment while this investigation goes on. Mm -hmm. Then a lot of the other employees, only came back on Monday of this week. So they had a staff meeting on Monday morning, let people know that the principal was going to be reassigned. And they did not give a lot of details, but it started coming out uh, later in the day uh, what the issue uh, was actually about.
0: So let's listen to Lakata's statement that he made on Tuesday. Listen, our first priority are students. No matter what, it's students. And making sure that they have the support. They're also protected. Uh, and that we are following the laws to do that. I can't speak much to uh, the investigation. I do want to make sure that you understand that it will be a fair investigation. The state has been informed. The Individuals from several different bargaining groups were removed from school, and they're at a different location, and they're working. Uh, that's not an indication of discipline. It's an indication that we want to make sure that we we investigate it properly. Okay, so not a really conclusive statement, Scott, and, and really, Lakata's options are, are are sort of you know, limited here because he's facing a state law. But when the state passed the Fairness in Women's Sports Act back in 2021, the Broward School Board was especially vocal in its opposition. And that was in keeping with the Broward School's willingness to confront Governor Ron DeSantis and the state on these so-called parental rights issues. Do you get the feeling Broward is gearing up to take DeSantis on again on the transgender front? Or are we not going to see that kind of assertiveness this time?
1: I don't see it happening right now. I mean, there's a couple of things that are different we've got going on now. Uh, five of the nine school board members who were on the board at the time are no longer on the school board right uh, and you may recall that four of them were actually removed by governor DeSantis because right. yeah. of the grand jury report so i think there's uh and now we have three of the school board members that are republicans and there's no way that they would uh vote to uh, to, they would try to challenge this. And I also hear, even from the ones that are the Democrats, uh, generally the feeling in the last couple of years has been, you know, we have to follow the law. Yeah. So I, I feel like the school board is probably a bit less, uh, maybe a little bit less activist than it was uh, mm. in 2021. right? Because right. that was around the same time that they were fighting the masks mm. issues and, and and they fought the Don't Say Gay Bill and some of the other things. Yeah. I don't see them actually being quite as aggressive. And, and mm-hmm. people Peter Licata, once he was hired, he made it very clear that you have to follow the law. So that was sort of, he made that very clear from the beginning.
0: You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about the controversy over a transgender student playing girls volleyball in Broward County. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Scott, let's turn to the student body response to this dispute. There were at least two student walkouts at Monarch this week in support of the transgender student. Their generation is obviously more open to transgender identity and acceptance than than older folks, including in girls' sports. But what was their message, would you say, to the Broward school system and the state?
1: Well, there were, on the first day uh, of the walkout, there were signs that said uh, supporting trans rights and let her serve, let her play, uh, those type of things. So I, I and there were chants and, and that type of thing. And I felt like there was a real strong effort to support her. Um, now, what happens a lot of times with these walkouts is that some students who actually are doing it for, you uh, Protest reasons do it, and then others decide. Well, you know, I would like to, you know, leave class too, so I'll go out too. So, I, how large the contingency to support the student was, I, I'm not really clear. Yeah, and I saw it on the second day too is it seemed less organized there's still a lot of students out there but Mm -hmm. um basically uh they were playing volleyball and throwing the frisbee and, and stuff like that and it didn't really feel like an organized march or or protest like it had been on the first right. day.
0: Now, the state weighed in on the controversy in a way that critics found a little distasteful. The, the education department spokeswoman couldn't just say state law forbids transgender students from playing girls sports. She had to make what sounded like a rather spiteful political statement, quote, under Governor DeSantis, boys will never be allowed to play girls sports, period. She seemed to betray what critics say is the real point of the law, which is to delegitimize transgender identity in general. Does that perhaps give Broward schools and those student protesters uh, a little more leverage against the law?
1: Well, I mean, I I don't know how much leverage they have because basically this has gone through at least one court and it's been upheld. Yeah. So uh, they can... That they can be opposed to it and clearly the if you look at what the state has done in the last couple of years they've passed a lot of uh anti-transgender laws i think this is this law was one that probably was an easy one for them to start with mm-hmm. because polling has generally shown that there is majority support for uh people that were born boys not playing on girls teams right yeah so um that and and you can you can support that position without being anti-transgender. You can just right. say, well, you know, you can look at it from the point of, I, well, I don't want uh, somebody, a, a girl, to not be able to uh, right. to to have a same athletic opportunity. Um, so there, 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 that there's that one. Right. Yeah.
0: There, 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 there's also the issue of how Broward school teachers and administrators, the folks actually on the ground, should proceed from here. Anna Fusco, the president of the Broward Teachers Union, made the point this week that the Broward school system has not done a good enough job training and explaining to teachers and administrators how to deal with this law and the transgender issue. Fusco spoke this week with our producer, Helen Acevedo, and here's what she had to say about it.
1: I felt that this investigation could have taken place without removing people. They did not harm anybody. This kid is being exploited. Employees are being scrutinized. Nobody was spot was taken because this female played. There's lots of pieces here that it just shows that this is done because it's discriminatory, power control, deplorable law. And now people's livelihoods are affected. A student is severely affected. All of the students there and they've shown
2: it by doing a little protesting are impacted. You know, we keep saying it's about the students, but our actions don't show it.
0: Scott, what about that point Fusco made about the teachers and administrators involved in this case? Should they have known, though, that they were technically flouting this new state law by letting this transgender student play girls' volleyball?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, we don't know for sure how many people knew right. that this student was actually transgender. My understanding is that this student uh, is not what is I guess if if the word is pass or whatever is what you could call that a lot of people did not know that this was a a transgender girl. They thought Uh it was just a a girl that was always a girl. So um, I I think that that's the first thing is whether the principal knew, whether the assistant principal knew, whether the athletic director, which coaches knew. I don't know. Um, okay, no, that's at, that at that point. At this, yeah,
0: that that that's a good point, and thanks for bringing that up. Um, we'll have to leave it there, unfortunately, Scott, for time. Scott Travis is the South Florida Sun Sentinel's education reporter. Scott, many thanks as always.
1: Okay, thanks a lot. I appreciate it.
0: Still to come: WLRN's new podcast on Everglades restoration and whether Big Sugar is blocking that effort. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This month, WLRN and NPR have been debuting a new podcast called Bright Lit Place. It explores the frustrating failure of the state and federal government to follow through with a project to restore the Everglades, an effort that was initiated almost a quarter century ago. Perhaps the biggest obstacle is cleaning the Glades' water that's polluted by phosphorus and other nutrients that run off from the region's sugarcane farms. And that, of course, brings the Bright Lit Place podcast to the perennial Everglades issue of Big Sugar, the politically powerful industry led by U.S. Sugar and Florida Crystals. Unless Big Sugar gives up more of the epic acreage it owns to the water restoration work, The overall Everglades restoration campaign may well remain stalled. How do we get Everglades restoration back on track? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Bright Lit Place, as I mentioned, is a joint project with NPR and supported by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. It's reported and narrated by WLRN's environment editor, Jenny Stiletovich. She joins me here in the studio to talk about this week's episode called The Reverse Farm that confronts that big sugar hurdle, among others. Jenny, congratulations on this really engaging, if also unsettling, podcast.
3: Thank you, Tim.
0: Let's start with a clip from this week's episode and an interesting anecdote from Michael Grunwald, the author of a book about the Everglades, The Swamp, that brings us into the Big Sugar discussion.
2: Al Gore, when he came down to Florida to announce this great Everglades restoration plan, he promised that there was going to be a hundred thousand acres of sugar fields would be converted into restoration reservoirs. Because remember, this is a storage project. You need storage. So he announced the plan that morning. That afternoon, President Clinton was in the Oval Office. He was actually breaking up with his girlfriend. Monica Lewinsky. And he got a call. You can read the Star Report after uh, President Clinton's impeachment. But it's said that, uh, that he interrupted this interlude to take a 22-minute phone call. And the White House switchboard record showed that it was, in fact, Alfonso Huhl, who is essentially the largest sugar baron in Florida. There was no way Big Sugar would surrender its land that easily. And
3: over the years, as restoration played out, we've seen that land for storage and land to clean water are the two things that keep getting shorted the most.
0: So Jenny Grunwald in that clip mentions a very important name in this whole controversy, Alfonso van Huhl. Tell us why.
3: Right. So Alfonso and his brother, Pepe, oversee Florida Crystals, Crystals. which uh, has about 195,000 acres of land that they farm in the Everglades agricultural area below the lake. Um, I think it speaks to his power and influence, both of theirs, that he can call the president. <laughs> <laughs> lake Okeechobee,
0: you're referring to. Le- yes, 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 uh, Lake right. Okeechobee. Yeah, that is quite powerful, uh, that you can keep keep the White House uh, there for 22 minutes. <laughs> right,
3: right. And they have always had a fleet of lobbyists um, and have been a major player in, in how restoration has unfolded over the mm-hmm. years. So
0: let's take a step back and talk about why water cleanup is such a key, if not that the key, effort in getting Everglades restoration fulfilled. You make an interesting point in the episode, for example, about how this is a project at the bottom of a watershed and not at the top, which makes a big difference, right?
3: Right, because it's always easier to, to, well, not always, but it is easier to stop the pollution than clean up the water. If you talk to most scientists, Mm -hmm. they'll say it's a very complicated and expensive process to undo the damage you've done. If you just stop it at the top, then, then, then you're in, in better shape. Right, but
0: geography does not give us that luxury when it comes to the Everglades.
3: Right, right, right. No, this water flows and it flows through this half million acres of farm fields that are fertilized to produce crops and mostly sugarcane field almost exclusively. Um, and then that flows down into the Everglades. Everglades restoration started because of that pollution. There were-
0: Essentially, mainly that phosphorus- The nutrient pollution,
3: pollution, right. right. Mm -hmm. The the Everglades evolved over time to have very, very little nutrients in it. The the only phosphorus that came, came from the rain, which was very little. Everything else has been added by fertilizer. And what that does is supercharge the growth of other things like cattails that clog up this river of grass grass that keeps our aquifers- uh, recharged and full, and Florida Bay fresh and healthy, and Biscayne Bay also gets water out of there.
0: Yeah. So, how have big sugar and figures like Von Hull complicated, if not exacerbated, that pivotal problem of depolluting Everglades water in order to realize the ecosystem's general restoration?
3: Well, so where they sit physically is in the River of Grass. It's, you know, right below the yeah. lake and in the middle of the river. Um, it They have have repeatedly lobbied and objected to efforts to expand storage and treatment areas, um, cleanup efforts, if you go <laughs> way back to when this started, um, with a lawsuit that Dexter Leighton filed um, over right. Clean Water and then in the 1980s. Out of that came a massive cleanup plan. The state wanted to tax them a penny a pound for sugar to help pay for that. They bitterly fought that and succeeded. Um, and so the cost of all that cleanup has fallen on taxpayers. Yeah. Uh, Just last year, we spent $91 million on on storage treatment areas. That's not even the total bill. That's just last year. And
0: another good example would be how Big Sugar ended up backing out of a deal it made with then Florida Governor Charlie Crist in 2008 to sell what, 180,000 acres of land it owns to the state. So the state could then
3: yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not really sure that they initially backed out. Okay. So it was they they came to this they they approached the state they wanted to right. sell 180,000 right. to, to, to their credit. Yes, right. okay, right, mm-hmm. right, and and then once the deal what came through, it started to get it to the appraisals for the land. People said that they were sugar friendly appraisers who overpriced the land. Okay, not yeah. all the land was in the right place, so it just kind of started to fall apart. But there remained options despite the 180,000 falling apart. There was a big option that people forget about. There's 47,000 acres that remained open until 2015, yeah. you know, so seven years later and that could have been used uh, for this controversial reservoir that we talk about in episode four.
0: Now we, we should also mention that you contacted U.S. Sugar and Florida Crystals and gave them every chance to respond to this criticism, but they did not respond? Correct. Okay, we just want to make that clear. How, then, are are folks involved in Everglades restoration trying to rectify this problem? I mean, this latest episode of the podcast is called The Reverse Farm for a reason. You and Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer Patrick Farrell went out there to see what it is they're reversing and how they're doing it, right?
3: Right. So so we often hear about these massive treatment marshes. There's 57,000 acres. They came about because of the lawsuit that Dexter Leighton and, and then the Miccosukee the tribe followed right up them. with and mm-hmm. sued to, to ensure that water will be cleaned. And one of the things Michael Grunwald said, I don't think it was included in the clip, is that there, the only... Clean water has succeeded or is in the process because there's a court order. When we talk about Mm -hmm. the failure of restoration, that's the only part of restoration that has the power of a court order behind it. And that has forced the state to spend you know millions and millions of dollars over 880 million on these treatment marshes so we wanted to see what are these things and how are they working so we spent a couple days out there all day long going around the marshes and they are amazingly complex um, difficult to manage the vegetation manager that we went out with we went out with two scientists a chief scientist and the vegetation manager that basically say you know these things are maxed out you know Hmm. we we are asking them to to do even more when we bring this new reservoir online. We have, and I should say, the reason we need the reservoir and all the storage is we're not even close to getting the amount of water that the Everglades restoration plan promised.
1: Right,
0: and it's fairly hazardous work too, right? I mean, snakes, alligators, yeah. what you, you saw out there? I mean, <laughs> yes. This is, this, is not, this is not exactly the safest work for these people to be doing out there.
3: Yeah, I mean, they're man-made marshes, but they are full of Florida wildlife. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I I
0: should mention here also that the podcast title, Bright Lit Place, is taken from the Miccosukee tribe's name for the Everglades. Um, The Miccosukees live on this land out there. Did did they welcome you and and this podcast project?
3: They did. I mean, they, they, so the Miccosukee tribe, you know has has had this really complicated um, existence right. on the tree islands in the middle of the Everglades and and when I talked to this this time around for a long time like they, they filed court actions but they were fairly quiet like the, you did not hear a lot about mm-hmm. the details of how much their existence got disrupted and for me that was one of the really surprising things I've covered the Everglades for 10 years and until I went out and talked to one of the tribal elders and heard about how he grew up I I didn't realize that this was essentially they're an island nation. Yeah. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. we've called it. That these tree islands were homes, and that they are half of them disappeared since the 1950s. What's left are smaller, or they're underwater. We visited one tree island, and there are boardwalks all over it because Michael yeah. Frank, you can't get around without the boardwalks above right, the water. Right, but over
0: the quarter past quarter century, they've been using that money from their casinos, sort of under the radar, to file a lot of litigation, and and as you mentioned, you know, to to get the water clean. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about WLRN's new podcast, Bright Lit Place, about the broken promises of Everglades restoration. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Let's take a step back, Jenny, and talk a little bit about that more general concern that Everglades restoration has been more or less a quarter century of broken or at least unconscionably delayed promises. I remember the for, first story I did for Time Magazine when I arrived here in 1999 was about the Mickey Suki's lit litigation efforts that we were just talking about to force cleanup of the Everglades water, and it seems like little, if anything, has changed since then. Can you take us briefly through the history of this dysfunctional effort, which started right at the turn of the century with something called
3: SERP, right? right. So so and I should back up a little bit. There was a lot of foundational work that started in the nineteen eighties. Bob Grant first uh, said we're mm-hmm. gonna we're gonna save the Everglades. And so the projects that he planned that which we've seen completed, when you hear about progress, it's because of projects that started in the nineteen eighties. The bridges across the Tamiami Trail mm-hmm. and the Kissimmee River restoration date back to the nineteen eighties. Then SERP comes along in two thousand
0: and SERP meaning
3: comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan was mm-hmm. supposed to Take, build on those projects and reconnect the whole system, restore the river of grass, get it flowing again. And that was going to have all these benefits, not just to wildlife, but flood control. It was also going to give us a head start on fighting climate change. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're dealing with this awful saltwater intrusion. We've seen well fields shut down. Right. This could have helped stall, you know.
0: Your podcast points out that, that one of the big problems is the Army Corps of Engineers, which is supposed to be the, you know, the muscle in this plan. They've got a huge backlog of projects. Is that the main problem here or is political foot dragging, like especially big sugars lobbying, for example, is that the problem, which I, are both? I,
3: I think it has more to do with, with political foot dragging okay. and Congress not authorizing projects. Um, the, the Corps had a, a backlog when surpassed in 2000. That was a big concern that they had this massive backlog. Um, I think that they've, I haven't looked core wide, so I'm not sure what the progress is. Mm -hmm. But my sense now is they've got, you know, they've staff and they've, they've, sped up planning so projects that used to take forever five years or more to plan they now have an are required to get them done in three years which sounds like a long time but in core in the core universe yeah. that's pretty pretty fast so i really i think it has to do with the authorizations the fact that these water resources development acts that were supposed to authorize the mm-hmm. work were supposed to happen every two years and between 2000 and essentially 2014 yeah they got they got derailed
0: but this all comes back to water cleanup, right? As your episode this right. week makes boldly clear. And there's a big deadline looming for that, right?
3: Right. So these this this legal action, the court yeah. stuff that started with Dexter Leighton and then the Miccosukee Tribe, by 2025, the state has to begin showing that it can meet okay. these phosphorus levels. Two years from now. Two years from now. Mm-hmm. This past year, the National Academies of Sciences, which is the group that Congress ordered to give progress reports on restoration progress s- said to the state and the core or really the state because water cleanup is the state's obligation you're in danger of not meeting that they have yeah. significant concerns that that deadline that the state is not going to meet it this this hmm. EAA reservoir that got passed yeah. I, I just talked to a scientist who said the authorizations in place for the cleanup are not going to work
0: mm-hmm.
3: it's too much dirty water we're not going to we're not going to make it
0: Can you give us a preview of what next week's episode is all about?
3: So next week, we take a closer look at that EAA reservoir and the politics that Mm -hmm. shaped it and this fight between the Everglades Foundation and its chief scientists who oh. is yeah
2: mm-hmm.
0: and we'll remind folks that WLRN's Bright Lit Place podcast is a joint effort with NPR and supported by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Remind us Jenny where listeners can find it. It's coming out every Wednesday, right?
3: Right. We have a website brightlitplace.org or, or you know wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Okay. And uh Again, but they can also find it at NPR, no? Or-
3: yes, you can find it under NPR's podcast. Again, brightlitplace.org is our website. And there will be a lot more photographs from Patrick um, and maps, which are very helpful in a story like this.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, Jenny, thanks a lot. Jenny Stiletovic is WLRN's environment editor and the host of its new Everglades podcast, Brightlit Place. Thanks again, Jenny, and congratulations. Thank you, Tim. Still to come, what can be done to save Puerto Rico's health care system and the lives being lost there as it collapses? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This week, The Washington Post published a troubling report on an alarming rise in Puerto Rico's death rate. And it made fairly clear what the culprit is. A collapsing healthcare system that's left large swaths of the U.S. island territory with scant medical infrastructure and personnel. In 2010, for example, there were 19,000 physicians in Puerto Rico. Today, there are fewer than 11,000. A lot of this is due to the massive population exodus Puerto Rico has experienced, especially in the wake of the devastation caused by Hurricane Maria six years ago. Doctors and nurses have been a big part of that out migration, and many of them have ended up here in South Florida, which is home to an especially large Puerto Rican community. But the causes run deeper than that from corruption in San Juan to neglect in Washington. Do you have family or friends struggling with Puerto Rico's wrecked health care system? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Paul Velez. He's the president and CEO of the Borinquen Medical Centers here in Miami-Dade County. Borinquen is the indigenous name for the island of Puerto Rico. Paul, thanks for talking with us about this.
4: Well, thank you for inviting me once again. It's been a while since I've been on your show. And again, it's an honor to be able to uh, do this interview with you because you're just you have just an outstanding history of the Americas and Latino America. Uh, just uh, again, it's, it's indeed an honor.
0: Well, thank you. No, it's an honor to have you on and welcome back. Paul, let's take a look at some of those alarming aspects of Puerto Rico's healthcare system meltdown that the Washington Post brought up. I mentioned that the number of physicians on the island has dropped by almost 50% in just the past decade. Fewer than a third of its municipalities have hospitals with accessible beds, and some Puerto Ricans live as far as 20 miles away from the nearest hospital. There are only 95 cardiologists on the whole island today, and the Post makes it clear that's all a big reason Puerto Rico saw some 3,300 more deaths last year than would normally be expected. Would you agree with that correlation the Post is drawing?
4: Absolutely, because this has been a growing concern for a number of years. And to see the island r- lose many of its residents to the, to the diaspora or to the mainland, mm-hmm. especially here in central and south Florida, yep. it's, it's, it, it, again, it's horrible.
0: Right. And we should remind people, Puerto Ricans on the island are U.S. citizens and therefore, uh, you know, we, we don't we, we don't call them, you know, immigrants because they are coming essentially to the U.S. mainland where they are citizens. I just want to re, you know, remind people of that. Um, Paul, what do you personally, as a healthcare administrator who works with the Puerto Rican community here, what do you consider to be some of the most glaring problems the island's healthcare system is facing right now?
4: I would like to give a shout out to the Puerto Rican Leadership Council of South Florida, in which I serve as the current president. And we have many Puerto Ricans that reside here, as well as in Puerto Rico, that come from different professions. And also they represent uh, from the business industry and also um, members of the government as well. Mm -hmm. The problems are Puerto Rico needs money, an infusion of money that needs to be able to go into programs to revitalize the country, because even though there's been a reduction in the debt, there is still a huge debt. And I compare that to like a loan shark, mm-hmm. that even though right. one a person who has, a gamb- who has uh, gambling problems, man, and they end up owing money, we are never going to be able to get out of this debt unless there are... Ways and means to be able to incentivize the country to be able to bring businesses, as well as also encouraging professionals to stay in the country.
0: Right, and, and what the, what what are what are some of the more glaring ways that you see uh, factors like that debt translating into the breakdown of the healthcare system, specifically?
4: As you just said earlier, when you lose professionals, when you lose providers doctors dentists nurses and they cannot survive the salary there there are huge salary disparities in puerto rico uh there is also economic disparities and most important even where it comes to medicaid and medicare reimbursements they're not at the same rate whatsoever compared to the mainland united states and
0: i want i want to get i want to get to that little later when we discuss solutions here Sure. The post of course brings up what is arguably the chief cause of this emergency and and we've already brought it up that's the massive exodus of healthcare professionals from Puerto Rico especially since Hurricane Maria devastated the island in 2017. I myself remember I- interviewing two women in San Juan right after the hurricane who had just started a headhunting firm helping Puerto Rican doctors and nurses find jobs in the healthcare system here in South Florida and their business was frankly booming. How badly did that brain drain affect Puerto Rico's healthcare system, Paul?
4: Hugely, because again, when you lose, when you when you when you lose professionals at a rate that exceeds losing one million folks in approximately ten to twelve years, yeah, it's humongous. It's it's horrible. Again. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Why did so many healthcare professionals in Puerto Rico, though, decide after Hurricane Maria and even before it, frankly, that they just couldn't pursue a career there anymore?
4: There was inadequate funding by the federal government where it came to to the rebuilding, the restoration of public facilities, uh, mm-hmm. especially in the areas of community health centers and hospitals. And many also had many professionals, providers have families. And it's unfortunate no one a lot many of these professionals in puerto rico did not want to leave yeah and but but if you're a neurologist
0: and you don't even have access to a cat scan or mri etc i mean there's a mentality developed like what am i doing here
4: yes and they so they have to leave their families behind or come with their immediate family or or want to spend a few years working Mm -hmm. here but then guess what happens nothing has been done constructively, in my opinion, to revitalize, you know, the country. There have been incentives for, 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 for startup companies to go to Puerto Rico. But again, this began 20 years ago Mm -hmm. when there, when we used to hear the terms contract with America and being able to eliminate those, those uh, incentives where businesses that could be able to be, uh, have those, uh, I guess you can say like a tax shelter or a tax haven. And and I, and Mm -hmm. I do
0: want to get to that as well. Sure, But it's not just the out-migration of doctors and nurses that has led to this problem. I mean, the the general exodus of Puerto Ricans from the island, and we're talking about at least a tenth of what a decade ago was more than three million people uh, have left. Uh, That's made the the population considerably older, and that's worsened the health care crisis, right? Right. In what major ways?
4: Well, when you look at a number of blue-collar workers that for example would go to central florida many of the workers and employees that work the theme parks a majority are puerto ricans yeah. and yeah. and that in itself shows you the trend that you're finding from from adolescents to you know to um folks in their 20s through their 40, you know th- through their 30s being able to obtain jobs there whether it's fifteen dollars an hour, but again, the salary disparities—not just for—not just for doctors and medical uh, personnel in Puerto Rico—is vastly different. You know, right. a, a nurse working in Puerto Rico may may get an RN maybe thirty-one to thirty-four thousand dollars. Right. That's ludicrous compared to what an RN can get in the state of Florida.
0: Right. But what you're left with, uh, you know, an island w- where, you know, the, the age group of, say, you know, 60 to 80 is, 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 is becoming appreciably larger than the age group of 18 to 35, for example. And that in, in and of itself makes the health crisis a, a lot more acute, I would imagine.
4: Yes and I, I and and you're quite correct. I mean acute is really quite appropriate because baby boomers are getting older and at the same time we're, we're wondering where are the generations generation x's and the z's yeah. out there. Yeah. We, we we need to bring them
0: back. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this is the South Florida Roundup. I'm Tim Padgett. We're discussing the healthcare collapse in Puerto Rico and the rising death rate there that's resulted from it. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Paul, let's pivot then to some possible solutions to this crisis, which is only going to drive more Puerto Ricans here to Central and South Florida if it keeps up, which in turn then would only make the crisis on the island worse. As you and I discussed and as you brought up a little earlier in our conversation here, more money has to top the list, does it not?
4: Absolutely.
0: And where should that money be going and where should we be getting it?
4: Well, that's the pan, that's the question for the for the Pandora's box. Right. The federal government has a responsibility, meaning Washington, precip- D.C., yeah, absolutely. Both the Congress and the Senate. And the problem has been such where anytime there is a discussion about providing an infusion of dollars and cents or needed funding and capital, so that there can be capital reinvestments in Puerto Rico it's it's looked upon by a majority of folks as oh it's welfare and it, and that is horrible again it's it shouldn't be yeah. because remember Tim years back what the term too big to fail was referring to banks. And there was an infusion of federal dollars that did provided billions of dollars. And not all these were loans. Many were forgiven. So why can't we also provide needed capital and infrastructure money, for example? and And I mentioned this to a coworker this morning. The electrical grid. How can you be able to have you can have all the equipment, but if you don't even have a power, a, yeah. a power, I mean, electrical power system that functions, uh, how, how are you going to, yeah. are you going to run the hospitals and the clinics?
0: Well, one of the one of the important points you brought up earlier uh, it was Medicare disparity. For example, the right. disparity in mm-hmm. what in what doctors and and patients can expect to get from Medicare on the island as opposed to what we can you know expect to get here on the mainland.
4: Right. Because you see, if you have a managed care plan, I'm not going to be naming the different plans, but mm-hmm. those that are very well advertised uh, in, throughout the media, you, they may not apply if you have a certain Medicare plan, let's say in Puerto Rico or Medicare Advantage, as they're now being called, yeah. which is a lot different. It's very limited. It's not, You may not be able to use your card in the state of Florida or any other state in the, uh, you know, in in America. So that's another issue too. There's not, there's no equality where it comes to providing reimbursement rates for Medicaid and Medicare in Puerto Rico.
0: Right, and I want to get back to some, another important point you made earlier here about one of the big ironies, let's call it. How much for, you know, when we talk about Washington's neglect, of the U.S. territorial island in this respect. One glaring irony to me that stands out is that the U.S. government has gone to great lengths to help make Puerto Rico, for example, a tax haven hub for the pharmaceutical interest, industry, which I think you were alert, alluding to earlier, and yet right. the island has become a healthcare dystopia. How do you reconcile those two, those two uh, you know, contradictions? How should the U.S. be stepping up to essentially help save lives in Puerto Rico now?
4: Well, the first thing I thought of was the Netflix episode, uh, series called Stranger Things. It's strange, <laughs> it's strange right. that th- there could be, you know, pharmaceutical companies, you know, in Puerto Rico, but yet there is a huge healthcare disparity. And I think this is where there has to be some real, real discussions with members of the Congress and the Senate, because I think there's always going to be a fear where it comes to what about the status. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a a, a small percentage wanting independence, a a larger percentage wanting to have keep it the way it is, keep it commonwealth and, of course, statehood. this this those three topics alone or the topic of those three different, uh, you know, um, positions for the future can create uh, a lot of infighting or discussion both here and, and in the Congress. But the point is The way the country is being operated right now is totally inadequate and there's not enough funding for the for the residents. When you say
0: when you say the country, you were referring to Puerto Rico, the island,
4: the island, of course. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. Yes. I mean, it is a U.S. territory. But on the other hand, you know, Puerto Rico cannot be treated like a stepchild or an orphan.
0: Right. Because really, no matter what the island's status is Commonwealth statehood or, or independent country we're, st- we're, right. we're we're talking about health care people's lives that really shouldn't this the status really shouldn't play into that discussion should it
4: um it shouldn't but remember what happened um and Berrinkcan was part of history where it came to the Affordable Care Act, yeah. which uh which some folks call Obamacare yeah there was such opposition. There was perception that this was communism, it was socialism, even though the Mm -hmm. plan, Tim, was very, very similar to the Massachusetts plan years ago. Paul, Mm
0: -hmm. we'll have to leave it there, unfortunately, for time. Paul Velez is the president and CEO of the Borinkan Medical Centers. Paul, many thanks. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, and happy holidays, man. You too. Finally on the Roundup, if New York has a rats problem, Miami has an iguanas problem. So Miami-Dade County is now calling open season on these lizards. The county is looking to hire reptile trappers to capture and humanely dispose of iguanas due to large populations of them taking over county parks. In fact, at least where I live in South Dade, Miami-Dade County parks are starting to look more like Jurassic Park. When these invasive iguanas get up on their hind legs, they look less like garden lizards and more like prehistoric velociraptors. They also damage seawalls and roadways here with their burrowing. They climb into your pools and gutters, and when temperatures drop, they fall from trees and scare the bejesus out of your kids. They become such a problem that state and local law now allows any of us to exterminate iguanas humanely without a permit. Some suggest the lizards are even good for cooking. I won't ask if they taste like chicken. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a Greek weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, see. OBRIGADO
1: WLRN Public Media.